Hello everyone and welcome to A Healthy Obsession, a podcast by Small Goal Soccer. My name is Adam Thurwell. Today I'm going to be talking to Bobby Madley. Bobby is a professional football referee. He's refereed at the highest level of the game during many years in the English Premier League. Today we're going to be talking all things refereeing, covering a bunch of different topics like VAR, his own experience refereeing games, but also his exile from the Premier League, which is a fascinating story. We're going to get into the show. If you enjoy it, share it with your mates and we appreciate the support let's go all right it's my pleasure to welcome on mr bobby mad bobby how are you doing i'm all right man thank you how are you Yes, yeah, very good, thanks. And, and just for some of our audience that are um, perhaps not as familiar with your name, can you tell us just uh, and really briefly who Bobby Madley is? <laughs> got a few, we've got a few names for him over the years. Um, yeah, so I was a Premier League referee in England. Um, refereed there in the professional football for, for many years. Um, now I live over in Norway. Uh, I've been here for nearly two years now. Um, but I'll be moving back so hopefully next season when, the, when we can get the season restarted I'll be back refereeing in professional football back over here in England so it's, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite an exciting time to look forward to at the moment Yeah and we'll get into it a little bit just as far as your own story goes but just to start off how did you get into refereeing originally what was the, the kind of break way for you to get into refereeing? Yeah, I kind of fell into it, mate, to be honest. It was never a, it was never something I particularly wanted to do. It was never certainly never a career I, I looked at. Um I played, I played at a decent level, um, sort of championship teams, school of excellence, um, up until the age of sort of fifteen. Um was a decent goal scorer back in the day, obviously not good enough. Um, and I, I just kind of fell in. I, I had a bit of arrogance as a kid, there's a bit of a chip on the shoulder, didn't particularly speak to referees with a lot of respect. And I just got challenged every one week. Little old guy who used to referee um, all of our games from my local team. He's probably sick of me shouting at him, to be honest. And one week he just said, look, you're spouting nonsense here. You think you know what you're talking about. You don't know the laws of the game. And he basically challenged me, Adam. He just said, look, if you go and take a referee's course, learn the laws of the game, you can tell me what you want. Call me what you want then. And I thought, well, for the sake of £15, which it was then, that's quite a decent offer. <laughs> I had no, no intention of becoming a ref. I thought, I'll just take this course. It's a good qualification as well. Um, and just fell into it the week after someone gave me like an under-13s under game to referee. Really enjoyed it. I sort of £10 in my pocket, which at 16 were quite nice. And just fell into it that way. So it was totally by accident. Exact same with my brother. I mean, he, I took him along to the course. The course is now a, a much more... Uh, practical base you're out on a pitch you're blowing a whistle which you would expect to train a referee back when I did it it was basically eight weeks on a Thursday night for two hours you read the laws of the game book at the end of that eight weeks you take an exam and then you're a ref so no practical training when I did it took my brother along as I'd uh, you know obviously no friends Um, so he came along to keep me company again no interest in in being a referee had to twist his arm into coming with me to be honest Um, and he's now a, a FIFA international referee. He also referees on the Premier League professionally now. So it, that little bit of fate, I suppose, worked out well for both of us. So, yeah, it's totally by mistake, but it worked out okay in the end, I guess. So as far as uh, in the US, there's a bit of a, a shortage of people sort of doing what you've just described, where mm. it's just people 
getting involved and and being a ref because it's easy to everyone that's not doing it right so it's it's like mm. the easiest thing in the world to slag a referee off and and criticize yeah. them but it, it seems here, here there's the definite shortage of people stepping up to go and, and do what you just described so is it the same in in europe and and uk is there a little bit of a shortage at the moment of, of good quality yeah. refs coming and- through I think there's some, to be fair, I think there's some really good quality refs. I mean, I'm in Norway at the moment. I work a lot with, with the young referees over here in Oslo. And the, the talent of young officials is outstanding between the age of, I mean, they can referee quite early over here. But from what I've seen, the talent between 15 and 16 up to 20, 21, um, they've got some really good years ahead of them in Norway. And female referees are superb here as well. So they, they, they have a real good referee community. I think one thing that America will always find challenging when it comes to soccer um, is there are so many other sports that are challenging people. You know, I think because there's so many baseball, American football, basketball, ice hockey, I suppose, in, in the northern states, but we don't really have that in England as much. You know, so we, with football being the majority, or soccer being the majority sport that most people grow up with and, and play, I guess if you don't turn to football, then there is a bigger possibility that you can turn to to being a football referee and we kind of drive that in a little bit. It's not saying that referees are all failed footballers, um, but if people do, you know, if young guys do want a, a career potentially in professional football and they're never going to make it, then it's not a bad it's not a bad second option to go for. And I certainly know with the MLS, I'm, I'm good friends with Howard Webb, who works over there with the who's head of the, the pro referees in the MLS. You know, I'm sure he's passing exactly the same message on that to any of those players coming from any football academies, whether that's teams like you know DC United's academy down to the grassroots academy teams. Those opportunities are there for for the US referees as well. You know, they've got a really good program in America. Um, some top world-class referees, Matt Geiger, obviously, was in the last World Cup. Um, so the opportunities are there for, for young American officials as well, absolutely. So, so what, what was your own path like going up to the Premier League before that? Did you do the low leagues first? Obviously, you mentioned doing some kids' games when you were younger, but was, was it a pretty quick trajectory to moving into the, the Premiership or was it quite gradual? Yeah, I mean, I was quite fortunate, I guess, because I started at 16. I was sort of six foot, six foot one at 16, so I was quite tall. So I looked a little bit older than my age. Um, and I, I was quite an outgoing person. I think a, a big skill that a referee needs, certainly a young referee, is communication. One thing that probably prevents young referees now from what I see is communication because so much of their time is spent, you know, computers. And I know I sound like an old man saying this, but when I was at 16, I was a lot more outgoing, I think, than a lot of 16-year-olds seem to be now. So that communication skill is huge. I started off in lower leagues. Everybody starts off, I want to say at the bottom, because that's disrespectful to the referees who referee there. But obviously there is a pyramid. You start off at the lower end of that pyramid. Um, in local football, Sunday league football, I mean, you're, you're an English person, you know what Sunday league's all about. It's uh, it's pretty brutal football. Um, mm. There are not many not many rules are followed in that one, and it's it can be a little bit scary at times. And as a 16 year old, to control that on a Sunday morning when players are still a little bit fueled up with alcohol from the night before, it's quite an introduction, especially in the north of England, because um, that's quite tough football up there. And progress through there. Obviously, someone saw a little bit of talent. You start as a level seven referee and work your way up to level one, which is in the professional ranks. Um, so yeah, I, I was promoted through and up to the to level four, which is kind of the first area where you start seeing semi-professional sides. Um, maybe the 
ninth division, something like that in, in England. Mm-hmm. And again, a, a year there up to level three, which you're looking at the seventh division. But the one thing we do have in England, which is good, is once you start getting to even the seventh divisions, you're starting to referee in front of reasonably big crowds then, potentially between 500 and 1,000 at some stadiums. What so was that like? Uh, what was what was what like? Sorry, what what was it like going actually going to like crowd like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people people think that it's you know walking out in front of seventy five thousand people and the pressure of that. It's actually more difficult to referee in front of five hundred hmm. um, because you can hear those comments. You can hear what five hundred people are saying. I'm sure um, they're really complimentary as well. Yeah. Oh, always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never <laughs> never insulted once. Um, <laughs> but you, you can hear every comment they make. So at that level, it. it can be a little bit more intimidating really than just going out in front of a noise, which is basically all 75,000 is. And yeah, I, I worked as an assistant referee at the same time as refereeing, always as an assistant referee of the level or a couple of levels above where you're refereeing. Um, so I was fortunate at 23, I, I, I was an assistant referee on the Premier League for my first game, I worked with Mark Clattenburg. Um, so that gave me a good grounding. And it really showed me that this is, this is what I want to do. So even though I was still refereeing in the fifth division at the time, um, to be able, you know, every other week to walk out at likes of Old Trafford and Stamford Bridge and Anfield, it, it really whetted my appetite to, to want to do that as a ref. So progressed through the, the professional leagues and I think I had three years on the football league and then onto the Premier League when I was 26. So it was quite quick. It was, it was quite young. I think it was the second or third youngest at the time to do it. Um, but you need a little bit of luck along the way as well. You know, it's, it's not just about being this great referee. You've got to have a bit of luck and then take those opportunities when they when they throw themselves at you as well. Was, was there a certain match where you were just like, n- not particularly because of the atmosphere, maybe because like you said, it becomes a bit of a wall, right, over a certain number of people, but was there a certain match where you worked out and you thought, holy shit, this is like, this was, it was a bit of a, a shock, almost like, Brilliant. This um, is this is it. Yeah, I, I mean, I've had a couple probably positive and negative in that, that strike me. Probably my first real big test as a as a ref in professional football was um, Nottingham Forest against Derby County, which is if anyone who doesn't know, it's a it's a pretty brutal Derby game. There's you know they're not big fans of each other. <laughs> um, so to be given that game and to be trusted with that as a as a young ref was it was nice. It was good. It was a good opportunity. Um, and I probably learned more in that game about myself as a referee um, than the majority of games that I ref that went well. The first half, I came off and the commentators at halftime were saying, oh, he's, he's refereeing it like a proper derby game, which basically from a, from a fan perspective means he's let everyone kick everyone and not dealt with it. Yeah. Um, from a refereeing perspective, that's not always a good thing, you know, because that that's questioning have I got control of this game and I went out second half and I gave a red card which was incorrect it should have been a yellow card um, and as much as I didn't lose control of the game I knew that I'd fallen into the trap of almost being sucked in by the atmosphere and by the game itself and the crowd and and I let I felt like I'd let myself down in that one because the, the one thing I took from that was knowing that the one person who has to remain the most composed, the most calm, not get sucked into a situation of trying to make it an entertaining game, it's got to be the referee. Um, and I probably got sucked in a little bit. I got I got swept along by the occasion a bit that day. But again, you do one of two things. I don't know, you, you, you learn from that and you try and become better from it or you, you just say, oh, I just got unlucky. So I think I was big enough to learn and, and take that on the chin and, and try and develop as a result. 
And while you're doing all this, I mean, you're still young now, but I mean, this is this is a few years ago, but I mean, this is you're a young man while all this is going on. That's that, that's a lot for anyone, even a seasoned referee, right? I mean, it's uh, going in yeah. age must have been pretty pretty intense. Yeah, I mean, I think I was probably 25 at the time, which as a referee is really young. When you consider that as a player, you know, you probably, you're sort of middle-aged player, almost a seasoned pro at that stage. So as much as I'm working with players who are the same age as me, in terms of professional football, some of these guys had six and seven years experience. So they, they were more experienced in that level than I was, um, but, you know, I was fortunate at 26, obviously I kept refereeing well. At 26, I was given an opportunity to ref my first Premier League game, which came as a bit of a surprise. I wasn't given a heads up on it. Um, the fixtures come through on a Monday for referees. So at four o'clock on a Monday, you get an email that tells you where you're refereeing the following weekend. Um, a man came through that you're refereeing Southampton against West Brom, which nearly fell off my chair, to be honest. Um and then you're just thinking, right, you real I think you realise at that stage how big the Premier League is. You know, the championship is a big, big league, fifth or sixth most watched league in the world, I think. But you realise how big the Premier League is, how big that jump is, uh, the media around it. And I just wanted to go to that game and, and have a, you know, nobody talking about the ref and last on match of the day and no yellows and no reds and, you know, not make it about me. As it turned out, I ended up with three red cards and uh, <laughs> <laughs> just introduced myself a little bit. But again, that I think that's the look sometimes that you need. Maybe a nil-nil under the radar, you know, maybe that would have just passed by. Maybe it's I almost, would better, have to, it's almost better to jump in at the deep end, yeah? And like yeah, sort of, a little bit, yeah. a little bit, yeah. And you know, don't get me wrong, I, I made a few mistakes since, but I think when you get those opportunities, whether you're a player or as a referee, really, that's you know, you've got to try to take those opportunities as well and be brave enough to take them. And as far as the the actual refereeing community from the Championship and the Premier League, what was I know you mentioned Howard Webb earlier, but it was is there a, a good system in place for like mentorship and a sort of a community around? If you do have a bad game, there is a support system in place. What's that like? Yeah, they're very good. I mean, they, so the Championship has eighteen referees. They're all professional full time referees in the Championship. There's also eighteen full time professional referees in the Premier League. Um, so again, they, they meet every two weeks. They'll go away for two or three days on a training camp every two weeks. Um, so you, you become you become almost a, almost a team, almost the you know the twenty first team in the Premier League as such is the the team of refs. You spend that much time together. Um, I suppose we're fortunate. Most of them, I think, seventeen of the Sorry, 15 of the 18 were from the north of England, from pretty close. So we knew each other anyway socially. We played golf. We, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together. Um, but yeah, the, the one thing you do need as a ref is that support system. We have to travel on our own to games. You know, we're not allowed to travel with the other officials. So when you've got a game in Bournemouth, and for me, which would be a five-hour drive, if you potentially make a mistake at Bournemouth, you have a five-hour drive on your own home. And you need that, you know, stick the hands free in the car. You need to speak to the refs. You can speak to friends, family who aren't referees, but they don't quite understand, you know, they don't quite get it. But having that support network of the other referees to speak to, obviously my brother is, is a huge part of that. Um, then that was always helpful. That's always really helpful. And they, they do have sports psychologists that you work with, but I think the ones who, I think the most benefit certainly that I took was, was just speaking to the other guys and asking how their games had gone and telling them, what happened in mine and if something had gone wrong, you know, for them to just say, okay, let's, 
let's discuss it and let's look at the video clips when they come out and we'll talk about it together. So it's very good, very important. That's what I mean. It's it's like a team atmosphere as well as as well as competing against each other for the best games. So it's quite a it's quite a strange one. And this kind of leads into you told me this great story about yourself when when we met and uh, as far as the support system goes and kind of dealing with um you you have to remind me the name of is it the like the referees association or what what's the governing body for the refs? Yeah, yeah. So we've uh, yeah yeah. So I mean, very fortunate in terms of uh, in terms of what we work with. I mean, you, you saw out there charities like Ref Support UK, but also the FA, the, the Referees Association that have their own systems and networks in place. So I think sometimes it's harder not refereeing in professional football. So to have those local systems in place, those local. RAs, the referee associations, the guys who are refereeing grassroots football can go along to once a month and basically bounce off each other, like I just said there, on that I could with with my other colleagues as well. Because refereeing can be quite a lonely thing, you know. It's when you're out there on your own and you think you've made a mistake or someone else thinks you made a mistake. Sometimes it's nice to just have someone to bounce off a little bit, some other referees. So, yeah, hugely important to have that system. And that's something I would like to get into in just a little bit. It's just kind of the the modern state of refereeing, just as far as the the VAR and and that kind mm. of thing goes. But first, I just wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about. You've got a really unique story, just of while you've had some time away from the Premier League and and the leagues in England. Obviously, you mentioned earlier you're in Norway now. So if you could yeah. just talk, about it, it's it's really fascinating. I'm sure everyone would love to hear just a bit about why you've had your time away and and kind of what that process was like, how that came about. Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, the the story is not one I'm proud of, but it's one that I think is important to to give the message out now because, you know, like I said earlier, you can do one of two things. You can blame everybody else for things happening in your life or you can actually stand up and take one on the chin and accept that you made a mistake. And I did that. Um, You know, for 18 months, I didn't really speak about it. I left the Premier League um, almost under a bit of a mystery, really, that it came out in the newspapers. Oh, he's, he's quit. Um, and that wasn't the case. The fact was I, I lost my job. You know, I put myself in a position where, you know, I had my job taken away from me. Um, I'd gone, I'd, I'd taken a, a, a video for what I felt was in context to somebody. I sent it to one person by text message. I didn't put it on social media. And the video basically was around the, the context that the person I sent it to would, would have understood um, was basically that, would I have won a, a race, a parents' race, a sports schools, uh, sorry, school sports day, which are for the previous few years there'd been a bit of banter about, oh, he won't take part because he's scared of being beaten by the mums and the usual stuff. Mm. Um, and as I sat there, uh, 2018, um, somebody walked past the side of my car. I, I thought they were drunk initially, but the way they were staggering a little bit. But it, it became obvious when they when they were in front of the car, they weren't. They had a they had a walking disability. For whatever reason, you know, dark humour, not thinking. I took a video. The person walked away. There was no face on that. I took a video, five seconds. And I sent it to the one person who I trusted, who I'd had this banter about, you know, oh, you wouldn't win in a parents' race anyway. Um, and I sent it to them saying, oh, I, I, I might have a chance of winning the race this year. I mean... Yeah, I got I got let down by somebody who then sent that to my bosses. Um, did I deserve that? That's not my decision to make. You know, that's that's a corporate 
the corporate responsibility to make that decision. And, and the one thing is, you know, the, my ex-bosses took discrimination seriously. I, I don't feel like I'm a discriminatory person. I know I'm not. Um, you know, to discriminate against disability. My own dad was physically disabled all my life. I'd lived with it. So maybe that naively put me in a position where I'd, I almost joked about it with my dad all the time. It was his way of dealing with it. Um, and maybe I just misread that. Hmm. But what I put out of context was was wrong. It was offensive to somebody who didn't understand the context to it. I wasn't proud of it. Um, and I lost my career. I lost my job as a result of that. Um, for, for a silly mistake. You know, I said earlier, I, I, made some, I made some mistakes on a football pitch, but not as big as that. And as much as... I've never thrown that other person under the bus. I've never thrown their name out there. I don't see the point in that. I have to be big enough and accept that I took the video um, with no malice intended at all. And I sent that to somebody I trusted in a private text message that then ends up on a USB sticker anonymously on my, my boss's desk. I can't control that. But again, if a key message I could put to anyone listening, everything you send, you know, as soon as you hit send, you no longer control that that electronic footprint, you know, and, and that was reckless on my part. That was, uh, that was a little bit stupid. And I can say that, yeah, I trusted that person and whatever else. But as soon as you do that, I think you, you, you then put in a lot of faith and trust in other people. And that was just stupid of me to do. So yeah, I lost the career. My missus is, uh, she's Norwegian. So we were actually moving to England on the day that I got the phone call to, to ask if I could go into the, uh, into the office for a meeting about this because it had landed on the desk. So we were actually driving all our things around from Norway to England, which is a you know 2,000 mile trip. So it was a long, uh, a long old journey. I got to Hamburg in Germany and got the phone call. Um, and that's when we found out. So obviously that turned our lives upside down a bit. Luckily, I suppose in a sense, Jenny's, uh, Jenny's a nurse and she had a job over here already in the hospital. So, we just made the decision, right, well, let's do what we can. Let's just almost escape a little bit from the British press, which are not the friendliest. And when the story started to come out, I, I got ripped to pieces in the in the national media. And I sat down with the guys at the Norwegian FA. They were brilliant. Told them everything, showed them everything. And they went, okay, you know, we, we believe in second chances and we'll take you on refereeing over here. So I've refereed over here for all of last season. Kept me going. It's kept me sane a little bit because it's been dark. It's been pretty tough, mate. Mm. Um, but it's given me an opportunity to keep doing what you know something that makes me feel a bit more normal um, so yeah and since the reason I'm in Norway at the moment and there's there's obviously time where you go through something like that where you probably feel just sort of like I would imagine just quitting right and and stopping what what was yeah. the what was the motivation just to, to kind of get stay in the game and 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 clear your name, so to speak, right? Obviously, you're not. There was no malice intended, and and you want to come back from that, right? So, what what was the motivator? What was the driver? I'm sure you've had some some low points, and how do you come back from that? Yes, I mean some some incredibly low points over the last eighteen months. You know, some of the darkest places that you can go to. I feel like I got to, and the hard thing is trying to put. You know, you put a show on on a face during the day, and then when the lights go out at night. And suddenly your mind starts racing again and, and you, you end up with, the, with those kind of thoughts. And it's not an easy place to be. Mm. The one thing I did realise is that I'd lost everything. Financially, I lost everything. I lost my career, you know, and I lost my house over in England. All my material things in England are lost. So I was basically having to restart my life. And the one thing that I did have 
from my previous life as such that I could carry on doing and at least make me feel a little bit more normal as refereeing. Mm. Um, so basically, I came over, I started refereeing over here on the, the fourth division in Norway, which is grassroots football. You know, it's there's 20 people watching. The players are looking, going, what, what are you doing here? Why are you refereeing us? <laughs> but I, I almost fell in love with football again. I didn't realise, I, I don't think I did fall out of love with football, but it made me realise how lucky I was to, to officiate on the Premier League, you know, to do that week in, week out. And maybe start, maybe took that for granted a little. And so the reason I was stupid enough to send that video if I didn't, you know, if it didn't cross my mind that this is what you could lose. Um, so, yeah, refereeing just gave me that motivation to carry on. My, my partner's, um, so Jenny's dad was actually an ex-top league referee in Norway, which I didn't know until I met him, actually, which is quite a bit of a coincidence. He was former Premier League referee over here. Um, so again, to have someone to sit and talk about football with and referee, and it kept me going a bit. Um, and I just, I just got the bug for it again. I just got that passion for going out in front of twenty people and and just doing everything I could, you know, proving it to myself that you've still got this. And it's not about clearing me name, Adam, because I, I, you know, I'm guilty as charged. I put my hands up for that. This isn't looking for sympathy from anybody. Um, all I'd say is that you know, you, you learn lessons in life sometimes. I, I probably learn mine as, as hard a way as I possibly can. Um, now it's a matter of can you can you bounce back and come back stronger from it, or as a result of it. So the the, the timing, obviously, of, of going back into English football has coincided with uh, the meltdown of the COVID, yeah. right? And and so so what is uh, I suppose it's a little uncertain at the moment, but what what does that re-entry look like? Is is it you relocating back to England, or are you going to be staying in Norway and kind of doing a bit of both, or? Yeah, so I, I mean, I will eventually be relocating probably in the in the autumn time. Um, the discussions basically opened a door, which I wasn't overly expecting, to be honest. Um, as I said, what I will say about my previous employers was that they took discrimination seriously. And I think everybody would question if it would have worked out in the newspaper that they hadn't investigated that. They would have been under serious scrutiny for that. So I have no issue with that. No, they, they took a decision. I respect it, whether I think it's right or wrong. I do respect it. Um, but I had discussions with with somebody there and with my with my previous employer, and and they said, you know what, the, the doors the doors not completely closed, and that was an opportunity that I couldn't really turn down, and, and I accepted. I agreed, you know, to to go on. A, I flew over to England and went on a FA discrimination work course, a workshop. Um, as I said, I, I don't, I don't particularly feel that I'm a, well, I'm not a discriminatory person. However, you know, I, I committed an act which can be considered to be discriminatory against disabled people. I accept that, um, and I don't think any level of education on that. You know, you, I don't think you can ever be educated too much on that. So, it was something I wasn't resentful about having to go to England to do. That was part of the the process of getting back to ref in English football. Um, so the process basically will be to go back and, and start refereeing eventually in uh, in League One and League Two, so the third and fourth divisions. Um, it's not full time professional as I used to be, um, but the opportunities are there. They've told me the you know if you finish top of that list, send opportunities to every other referee that's on that list. I don't expect favours. Um, I know I've got to work hard, but. I, in my own head, I'm thinking, you know, you've done it once, so just go out there and, and referee like you know you can and be fit and do it again. Don't expect anything to, to be laid out on a, on a plate for you. If anything, I assume there'll probably be more scrutiny um, on me on and off the pitch, which again, I, I brought on myself, but I accept that. 
but it's a good challenge. It's nice to have that bit between my teeth again to uh, to take that up. I mean, you, you mentioned about you know the current situation we're in, Adam. As I said, my missus is a nurse. She's actually um, infectious medicine nurse, so she works on the COVID ward over here in Oslo. And I've seen her coming home. You know, I've seen her coming home every day and, and in tears because people have sadly passed away when she's working, and it kind of brings a sense of reality. So to the situation yeah I'm, I'm frustrated that I want to get back to refereeing English football but you know let's, let's, it can wait for a for a few months certainly yeah, until it, it's it, it pales in comparison really doesn't it when of he, course it does mate, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, f- f- football's football but this is this is the real world and correct people are dying it's f- football mm. can wait for a bit anyway Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. So, what, what's it? What's the standard been like in Norway? Anyway, is it it's sort of like League One, League Two level? Would you say, or is it is it comparable? Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite. It's not really comparable, to be fair, because obviously I started off in the lower divisions, hmm. um, and they, I think I probably benefited a little bit by the fact that they all watch Premier League football over here, so they I guess they get recognised more in Norway than they ever did in England, <laughs> um, which is quite bizarre. But when you go out and referee a game. I mean, it got. I did get to the stage a little bit where the respect was there before we'd even kicked off, which I know not all referees are afforded. I quite like a bit of banter with players on the pitch. I, I almost like a little bit of, um, not friction, but I, I like having to work hard to, to gain respect as a ref. Um, and I, I kind of found in the third and fourth divisions, I didn't have to do that that much here because the players knew where I'd refereed and that respect level was already there. So then you're trying to motivate yourself a bit more the actual standard of football is good they, they're on artificial pitches most of them obviously it gets to minus 20 here in the in the winter so not many grass pitches which is a bit brutal on the legs um, <laughs> yeah the, the actual doesn't favour the knees yeah, does it? it's been no not at all no, no. Um, but it's been good the, the level of football is good the level of discipline is very good I had one red card all last season which happened to be my last game of the season just for a denying an obvious goal scoring opportunity no dissent no so it's nice as, as a people they're actually a very friendly nation which I think reflects itself a little bit more a little bit on the football pitch as well so um, but it's been good it, it's nice because it gives you the opportunity then to go and work on other things like your fitness and positioning and rather than having to worry about you know putting little fires out around the football pitch all the time you just go and go and enjoy yourself running around and, and doing what you do and you mentioned that just it's important and you, you enjoy having uh, the banter with the players is there certain players that you've refed in the past that you think oh, I don't look forward to refing him or I love refing <laughs> this guy because it's, it's really good banter is there any players that you can name that you know yeah I mean to, to be fair mate yeah to be fair I think a lot of a lot of perception that you see on, on television is that referees just get abused for a living. That, that is all we do. We turn up on a Saturday and we get abused by, by these prima donna millionaires. These footballers are no different to me and you. They just earn a lot more money. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they're just lads out there that are going to play football. The relationship between the referees in the Premier League and the players is actually really, really good. Yes, players are going to get frustrated. Yes, you're going to see players swear. But you also have to remember that there's 30 cameras and every one of those, you know, that, that producer on Sky Sports or, you know, NBC, Fox, whatever, those producers are not stupid. They know when a player goes down and doesn't get a penalty and player carries on and the referee then runs 40 metres in the other direction, that camera pans straight onto that player's face. And they know for a fact that they'll react with frustration. So they might throw their arm, they might swear. As a ref, you're not seeing that because you're 40 metres up the pitch. 
But the producers and the television guys are very, very clever. They'll show that. Very rarely will you see a player stood right in a referee's face screaming and swearing. It happens and it shouldn't happen. Um, but it doesn't happen too often. So that perception of referees getting abused all the time, for anyone who's thinking of refereeing, um, that's not reality. That really isn't the reality. Certainly not in, in that level. In terms of getting on with players, I, I liked players who gave a little bit back. But I also like players you could take a bit back as well. You know, a little bit. If, if you're going to give me it, expect when you put the ball over the bar from 10 yards out, you know, expect and, and accept that when I walk past you and say, I can do that, Paul. That's why I started because you know, that's why I became a ref. You know, expect a little bit because you're going to get it if I'm going to expect a bit as well. Um, I like the players. I know Joey Barton's managing now. Joey was good on the pitch. I mean, he's a tough tackler. He's a tough player. But he was always respectful of referees. I certainly was to myself. And if I had a problem with the player, I'd ask Joey and he would sort that out rather than me going and throwing a yellow card up. So again, sometimes what you see on TV is not always the, the reality of, of players. Ones who come across as being the difficult players because they're shouting at the refs are often the ones who will actually engage with, with you as a referee and talk to you more. And, and you can explain a lot more things to majority of the players in the Premier League just want to play football though. You know, they, as a defender, if you're marking a Eden Hazard in the Premier League or a Mo Salah and that's your job, the moment you take two seconds out to have a banter with the ref when you don't need to, you've lost your man. <laughs> you know, he's gone, he's, he's 15 metres away. So they, they, don't, they can't afford to do that. Um, so yeah, they, there's less banter happens in the Premier League or less chat between the referees and the players, but it does still happen. And I, I can't think of a player that I've come across in my career really that I didn't look forward to refereeing the next time. It was a good challenge. So, yeah, you mentioned there one of the tougher games you did was the, the derby between uh, Nottingham Forest and Derby mm. County. Was there a, a game that stands out in your mind just as like a, it was end-to-end or like a, an all-action game? Was it a Premier League or Championship? Is there a game that stands out to you? Um, I think probably the, the one that stands out more than anything, and it's quite a strange one because I don't actually remember anything about the game. I watched the game back a couple of weeks ago and it was almost like I wasn't refereeing it. <laughs> um, and that was the, the championship playoff final. So it's Sheffield Wednesday against Hull City. Mm. Um, it's financially the biggest reward in, um, in any football game in the world. It's £200 million to the winners because they're promoted to the Premier League. Mm. Um, it was a bit more special for me. I'm from West Yorkshire in the north of England and Sheffield Wednesday from South Yorkshire and Hull City from East Yorkshire. So it was very close to two teams that are very close to where I'm from. Obviously, I had friends who supported both teams. Um, and to walk out at Wembley, there's 80,000 there. You know what's at stake. Um, and that's a lot of pressure. You know, that's a lot of pressure, basically, what could be on one decision. Got to the end of the game and it's... it's probably the most relieved I've felt as a referee, knowing that the ball's gone out for a goal kick and I'm blowing full time as soon as he kicks it. Um, and it's quite a nice feeling. So in terms of end-to-end games, that was a decent game. Having watched it again, it really was a decent game, to be fair. Mm. Um, but, but that's one that sticks out because that's, as a ref, you know, you can cost teams two points, three points by a, a late decision. But when it comes down to a playoff final, you know, every decision then potentially could cost them hugely financially, but it can end the season as such. And that's what you're remembered for. So that's a good experience. That was that was probably one of the best experiences I've had as a referee. Yeah, yeah that, and that's got to be special, just being at Wembley anyway, right? I mean, the atmosphere mm. and just uh, the history of the ground has got to be special. 
Yeah, it's amazing. I, I've been lucky, really. I've, I've, I mean, obviously Tottenham played there in their home league games, so I, I think I did two Tottenham games there, which never really felt like you were refereeing at Wembley, which is quite strange. Um, but I've, I've officiated nine times other than that at Wembley, so and it never gets boring. It never becomes normal um, because you know when you're there at Wembley, take away the Tottenham games, you're there for an occasion. Something big is happening. You know, it's a cup final or a playoff final. And you know that as a ref, you've been given that opportunity again to um, to take charge of that. And you also know you've got to deliver. So you look at the Community Shield, which again, I was fortunate enough to, to referee Chelsea against Arsenal. There's pressure on that because it's the first game of the season. Everybody's watching. Everybody can't wait to get back to, to Premier League football. So what do they do? They all watch the season opener, which is the champion, which is the uh, the Community Shield. Right. Um, so again, there's pressure on that you have to perform in that and make sure you get your own season off to a good start as well. So, yeah, there's, there's some pressures on the referee and it's not just a matter of throwing your boots over your shoulder and walking out at three o'clock. And just kind of uh, finally, I've got to ask you because I know it's opening Pandora's box a little bit and it, you could probably go on for a while about it, but as far as the, the changes that have happened in the last sort of how do I say like two seasons maybe uh, around the world anyway it's at different different stages of uh, being unrolled but as a ref what is your opinion of would you call it VAR or VAR what's, what's your what's your take I don't know I think, I think, I think, we're, I think we're still VAR in England but we're moving towards VAR so <laughs> yeah so I think so I, I think we're moving to, I'm still not quite sure myself I think I, VAR I tend to call it um, do you know what as I was sceptical about this. I, I was really sceptical and I didn't really want to see it. I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to football. Mm. Um, I fell in love with football because of the chats that you have over a beer after a game as a fan. Um, and I didn't really want to see VAR. I can totally understand your goal line technology, I think, has been a, an unbelievable implementation in football. It's a massive positive. I think VAR probably is as well, but I think we've got to get a little bit more realistic within media and within fans. You know, we, I don't think it could have been made clearer by FIFA and IFAB and all the different FAs that this is only for real huge game-changing errors. And everybody seemed to buy into it until day one. <laughs> and then suddenly a goal is scored from a throw-in that shouldn't have been given and people are wanting the throw-in looked at. Well, that's the so we've got to be realistic. How, how, how far do you go back, right, is the part I'm always scratching my head. It's like, well, if that's not supposed to be a throw-in, but then four passes later a goal scored, it's like this... Yeah. Like you said, it's supposed to be for, for major decisions, right? There's only there's only four things that they actually look at. So they look at goals and goals being, you know, has it been legally scored in terms of was there a handball or a foul in the build-up or an offside in the build-up? So the goals can be checked. Where, how far you go back is basically where the, the VAR considers that that was the start of that attack. Now, the start of that attack would be potentially a throw-in that would be the start. So you wouldn't go back and check whether it was a throwing or not. Yeah. So you can't go back and, and re-referee every decision going building up to it. So you would look at them, red cards, penalty kicks, and you know mistaken identities. So they're the only things that we look at. And yet, you know, when VAR is overused, people complain it's taking too long. And then when they're clearing it very quickly, the media are complaining, saying we want the referee to go to the side of the pitch and have a look. So... They, they kind of they kind of want it both ways, and it can't happen both ways. If the ref goes to the side of the pitch, which we see in the MLS, it's going to take longer. If they trust the guy that's in the van, 
you know, the VAR that's in there, who is a Premier League referee. You know, this isn't someone they pulled off the street. It's a Premier League referee that's in the van. They're going to watch it on television, away from that pressure of a Premier League stadium, potentially a slow motion, although we prefer not to do that. They're going to look at things like that in a much more comfortable, um, you know, situation. I'm going to be able to pass that information on. The referee still has the right to say, I want to have a look myself, just to make sure. Um, but I think we will move towards them checking the monitors a little bit more in the Premier League. It was trialed. It, it was trialed that they would just tell them what happened, but it doesn't feel right inside the stadium because nobody knows what's going on. In, from my opinion, it should be on the screen. Discuss it while it's on the screen so that everybody knows what you're looking at, um, and broadcast that feed. Broadcast the conversation over not on, on television, between the refs and VAR. Just put people in the loop. It's not secret. If you're giving a penalty, in two seconds, three seconds time, 75,000 people are going to see you give a penalty. So to give the reason for that has got to be an educational thing. So I think they'll move forward. But I, I do like it. I do like it, yeah. I'm not sure if you watch any American football, but that's just sort of what you just described as what, how they do mm. it, right? With the headphone and the microphone and the, they talk yeah. loud and kind of make an announcement to everyone of why they've made their decision. It's still a, a little bit of a, it's a slower game, right? There's so much more stopping and starting than there is in yeah. in, in our football and soccer, but um, yeah. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm not sure I'd want that. I, I'm not sure I would want to stand there and explain it over a loudspeaker to 70,000 people. You know, what, what I do think you can get to a stage of is that conversation I have with the, the fourth official, play that on, sorry, with the VAR, play that on TV. Let, let people at home listen to that conversation because what you'll find, rugby, I know it isn't as big in America, but rugby in England, rugby union, they're very clever. While it's on the television, the referee and the TMO, so their VAR, they're talking all the time. They're talking about what they're looking at. Oh, he's gone in, his arm's a little high. It's, And while they're talking, the commentator can't because they've got to show up because people at home want to hear what the ref's saying. So by the time the referees are finished, and most of the time they'll look at the screen and they know straight away it's a red card. But they'll take 20 seconds discussing between themselves why that's a red card. Yeah, I agree. By the time 20 seconds is up, Everybody at home goes, this is a red card because they've educated people as to why. And it's pretty clever. And I think football could, uh, I think football could end up doing that as well. But in the stadium, just, you know, help, help them out in terms of having it on the screen. But I'm not sure about talking to the crowd. I don't think I'd be wanting to do that too much, to be honest. Well, and just from my own experience, I think uh, especially a football crowd, an English football crowd, is going to be a little bit more harsh than potentially yeah. an NFL crowd might be. Yeah, correct. Yeah, they're not going to accept it and go, that's absolutely fine. Thanks yeah. very much for explaining. Yeah, You mentioned it there before. It's like one, one of the things that we're supposed to solve is like, oh, well, fans aren't going to have anything to talk about. And mm. I, I, find, I found people talking more about controversial... <laughs> VAR decisions than, yeah. Yeah, than we used to talk about things previously so maybe it's just a, a growing pains thing right like eventually it'll like you just described rugby union that they'll refine the process and yeah you know, look other sports Adam have had this for I mean cricket rugby certainly from an English perspective they've had this for 20 25 years some of these right. sports and they're still perfecting it you know there's still things that they look at and go mm, we can still do that better Footballers had this for six months in England, hmm. in the Premier League, and a little bit longer in America. But we've had this for six months, and suddenly people expect perfection. And if you think, if you consider the referees, you know, they, we, we, even when I was there, we were practicing this, we were doing offline testing, we were 
doing behind closed door games for us trying to get used to how this system works because as a ref you've never been proved wrong on the pitch before the only time you've ever been proved wrong is when you leave the stadium and you look at the clip and go jesus i've got it wrong so you never really knew whereas now there's a mindset there's a psychology how do you referee now when you know you've got a penalty wrong or you know you've you sent someone off wrong you have to understand and, and develop from that so to expect referees that they're just going to get used to this overnight is I, I liken it to um to driving a car so i come here to norway they drive on in america they say they drive on the opposite side of the road to england if we suddenly said to americans tomorrow drive on the left hand side i mean they, they don't suddenly not know how to drive <laughs> but what you'll do is you're putting something in that they've never done before. They're having to think about it a little bit more. Hmm. So you're going to have accidents. You know, th this doesn't mean people become bad drivers. It doesn't mean referees become bad referees. It's just throwing things in there that they've never in their lives had to deal with before. And yet we're saying be perfect from day one, be perfect. Cause it doesn't matter how many training games you do with no crowd there. You can never replicate a Premier League game. You can take 200 penalty kicks in training, but when your penalty kick is in the World Cup final, you can't you can't replicate that. So, again, I think the refs, maybe I'm slightly biased on that, but I think the refs need to be cut a little bit of slack because I actually think they've done a really good job with it this season. I can't think of many huge howlers that has happened this season. One or two mistakes, but I can't think of many huge ones, and that's got to be a positive thing. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, and I think it's also a, a, just a cultural thing where maybe people are expecting now for things to be perfect right away. Yep. They don't like to wait. They don't like for it to really to build towards things anymore. It has to be, all right, well, we've got this now. Why isn't it making the right decision every time? Why isn't everything... Yep whether it's for my team or against my team. And it seems like just from like the outside looking in, so to speak, it, to, to me, it's like there needs to be a bit of patience. There's no way that it can just click your fingers and make it go, right? Yeah. Football's an objective sport. This isn't, you know, it's not black and white like the majority of sports are. You know, in, in you throw a flag in American football, it's usually a black or white decision. That's not the same in football. There's so many grey areas and opinions. Me and you can sit and watch a clip I think it's a red card, and I'm 100% certain it's a red card. So to me, those those words that we hear a lot clear and obvious, it's clear and obvious, it's a red card. You would look at that clip, and to you, it's a yellow card, 100%. Therefore, it's clearly and obviously not a red card. So we're now in opinions, we're looking at the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, how we can possibly expect 18 referees to sit in a room and all of them go, yeah, that's a red. It's just not going to happen. You know, we, we used to go and do club visits, so before the season started, I would go into a club, I'd train with them on the morning and then I'd do a, a presentation you know, in the, the afternoon with them. This is what we're looking at this season, work with us. But, and we'd show some clips and in that, there'd be some penalty kick decisions, for instance, just to show them this is what the thought process is as a referee, this is what we'll be doing this season. And when we gauge the room in terms of whether they think that's a penalty kick, what you'll tend to find is that the defending players in the room will say it's never a penalty kick. The attacking players in the room will say it's absolutely a penalty kick. So it's not only referees that you know are inconsistent in terms of opinions, which is human nature. You also get it within teams, depending on the position you play. 
what is a great defender, what is a great tackle to a defender is a penalty kick to an attacker. So it's impossible to please everyone. And people have got to start understanding that. It's not a black and white sport. We don't want it to be black and white. That's what I was going to say. That's, that's why we love it, right? The unpredictability. The, the, yeah. The, the, those parts of it are, are just, like you said, I, I see one thing and someone else sees something completely different and then you talk about it, but yeah. that doesn't mean, doesn't mean the other person's wrong or you can't. No. Just seems like there's a bit of middle ground missing. It, it seems right. Yeah, I, I, Andy will send me. My brother will send me clips through from a weekend where he's refereed, and I won't, might not have seen the game. And I said, "What do you think of this?" And he won't lead me down any. He won't put words. Like, what do you think? And I look and go, "Yeah, I think that's a red card." And he'll come back saying, "Well, I think it's a yellow." <laughs> you know, we're, we're professional referees. We're, we're looking at the same thing, and we're discussing. And I'll say, "Yeah, I can, I can see that. I can see where you're coming from." there's a reason the refs get together every two weeks, you know, so that they can look at clips and try to, as best as possible, create that element of consistency. But, you know, I have a higher tolerance level than some referees and maybe a lower one than other referees. So, again, that, that's you're never, ever going to be 100% consistent until you just have one robot who does that and nobody wants that. No, and and that's I think that's the the, the day the the soul is sold out of the game, right? Correct. Absolutely, we don't get, and then more people will probably lean towards whether it's like grassroots or just lower division stuff. If if it got to that point, I know that I would personally think, you know what, I'd rather go and watch Stockport County in the the conference than a Premier League game if it's just predictable and it's robotic, right? Like it's taking away all the freedom of the game. Absolutely, and I think when you sit and listen to fans now, you know they they're almost against VAR. It's, it's a great system when it works for your team. Mm. You know, it's, everybody loves it then. Sure. But the, the amount of players, I mean, I work, I've done a little bit of work over in, in Norway now with the, uh, with the Norwegian media and there's ex-players over here, Breda Hangeland, who obviously played for many years in the Premier League. Breda's hugely against VAR. Mm. His, his opinion is, do you know what? I stand in that tunnel before the game, I look at that referee at the front, they might make a mistake. But it'll be an honest mistake. But what I also know is that next week, when that mistake is for my team, I won't be complaining then. So his his thing was he was passionate about what football is, and that is that it's pure. Players make mistakes. Why shouldn't referees be able to make them? Um, you know, so I, I get that. So I see that from different perspectives. So it's interesting that there's actually some players and ex-players who who are massively against this. Yeah, and they understand that it, is, it swings and roundabouts, but ultimately the best team wins the league anyway, right? I mean, yeah, you might get a call or two go for you in, in certain games and in certain games you won't, but I mean, the league table, as Roy Keane said, the league table doesn't lie, right? It's uh, <laughs> yeah. the best team that wins the league no matter what anyway, so. Correct. I mean, I'm, I'm looking obviously from afar a little bit this season, just gone and mm. Liverpool have, have walked away with the league. They've had some decisions where everybody's saying, oh, they've got VARs, preferred them, which is nonsense, really, because these referees are doing a a professional job. Why on earth would any referee put their job or their integrity or credibility on the line for the sake of one moment in a football game, which in five minutes could be ruled out when the other team scores two anyway? Why on earth would they do that? But, you know, those accusations are made. But to even take away all of those accusations, Liverpool would still be top. You know, that's, that, that's, you play over, if you play over five games, I get it. If you play 38 games in a season, the best team will finish top of that league and the three teams you deserve to go down will go down. And you have 38 opportunities to get out of that. So you know, that can't come down to one refereeing decision in October in the 36th minute. 
um, which <laughs> which I get levelled at me every now and again. Um, <laughs> that doesn't cost you promotion or relegation. So yeah, I think we've got to be realistic with this. No, it's it's fascinating anyway. So last word, mate, and then we'll uh, we'll let you get on your way. So just uh, a little, I would love to get your thoughts just on, you, you did some 6v6 games at the World Cup last year. Just yeah. Some thoughts on the 6v6 game and just like small-sided football. What you, what your thoughts were on doing those games last year and kind of the way you see the, the game shaping up, the small-sided game shaping up globally? Yeah, I, I have to say, I mean, I used to play a little bit when I was when I was younger and at university and just more of a, a keep fit. And obviously six-a-side in England is basically smash people into the side of the wall really that's just more the fun of it mm. so that I was a bit worried that that was my perception of six-a-side football from what I'd played um, but from going over obviously we went to Crete to the World Cup so professionally run um, the teams came they didn't come for a holiday they came to compete in a proper World Cup and I loved that mm. it was tense it, I, it was nerve-wracking refereeing 3,000 people in the stadium standard of football was really good it's quick um, the skill on show from the players, I think certainly from the England team, I think a lot of those players came from sort of the sixth division. Right. The skill fact, the skill factor that were on the players on show from all over the world was brilliant. It was nice to be able to see teams like Moldova compete against teams like Spain because in the 11 side game, that's not, you know, realistically, that's not going to happen. Right. In the 6 side game, we're seeing teams from you know, every corner, Kazakhstan and teams that are really... You know that you might not expect to be footballing powers um, that could stand up to, to the traditional footballing powers that be. I absolutely loved it. I have to say, I loved it. I thought the it's tough. You've got to be physically fit to do it to ref it as well. So obviously, you're up and down the full pitch. Um, and I can't speak highly enough of the organisation of you know from leisure leagues and soccer and the guys who who put that together. Um, it were a privilege to be involved in, and I think we should have been coming out, coming to the the twenty twenty edition of the World Cup, but obviously that's that's been put on hold because of, of current events. So hopefully next year um, I'll be able to get involved again and be able to uh, meet up with the American team again and, uh, and see if they can go that little bit further this time. Yeah, well, we, we're, we've got, uh, we've definitely got, we we owe one anyway. We're, uh, we've, we've got, I think we've all got the bit between our teeth to get back in there and yeah. get in the mix. But listen, Bobby, it was great talking to you, mate. And thanks again for coming on today. It's been, uh, been truly fascinating and always great to talk to you, mate. Anytime. Cheers for that, Adam. Thanks, mate. Cheers, pal.